Hello and welcome to Senius Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Senius Capital, a crypto asset manager pursuing fund-to-fund strategies. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management space. In each episode, I will chat with a leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In our third episode, I sit down with Steve McKeon of Collab Currency, an early-stage crypto-focused venture fund investing into leading projects building the next generation of culture and consumer technology. Let's get into the show. Welcome, everyone, to episode three of the Senius Studio. I am your host, Ben Jacobs from Senius Capital, and I am thrilled to have our guest here today. So on this episode of Senior Studio, we are welcomed by Steve McKeon, a general partner and managing partner at Collab Currency, one of the brightest investors I've met, incredibly deep in the space with a background that that I find fascinating. Collab Currency has become a, a pioneering fund in the space, particularly on the consumer side, which I'm excited to dig into today. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Steve. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. So first, I would just love to dive a little bit into your background. I, As I've said on, on previous episodes, what's interesting about crypto is people are not crypto lifers. They typically had careers beforehand, and that often influences their biases and, and thinking in crypto. So would love to expand a little bit on, on your background and hear it from you. Yeah. Happy to expand there. I mean, I think anybody who's older than about 30 definitely had to do something before crypto. And I mean, I'm not I'm not a VC lifer either. So it was actually sort of a random series of events that, that led to this fund. So I think just to quickly recap, I mean, started my career in tech back in the dot-com era. So, you know, I've been around a while. Everything melted down there in 2000, of course. Went up and ran a winery in Napa Valley for most Which of my winery? time. It's called Greenfield Wine Company. So no one's really heard of it unless you're in the industry. We were actually pretty big. We produced about, I don't know, 8 million bottles a year, something like that. But anyway, eventually decided I was going to go back to school, went and got a PhD at Purdue, and then started here at the University of Oregon in 2011, so just over a decade ago. So have been a finance professor for a while. I'm now on leave because the fund just sort of occupies all my attention. But yeah, the, I mean, the things I found interesting as I was a professor was I, I wrote my PhD thesis on distributed ownership. I wrote it on employee options and how large a component of total share issuance those were. And so I guess I've always been kind of like fascinated by this concept of distributed ownership. And eventually like reignited my interest in tech from the beginning of my career i ended up starting a software company with some students nothing to do with crypto this was back in 2012 it was it was like basically a platform for commercial drones so it was a it was a software platform we grew that up we sold it to verizon and at that point i was like so that was probably about 2015 
And I was starting to think, like, what am I going to do next? I always kind of wanted to have a side hustle in addition to the professor deal. I just, I think I would miss not having kind of one foot in, in industry. So I looked around and I was like, man, I was kind of known as like the tech guy, like in the finance department at that point because of this startup. And I was like, I can't really be the tech guy in a finance department without being able to explain Bitcoin. And I'd been kind of like tracking Bitcoin for maybe like 18 months at that point. And I was like, I'm going to just learn everything I can about this. And so that was kind of like the start of it was just like no aspirations around like building any type of career or professional angle, like literally just wanting to like learn enough about it to be able to explain it to somebody else. Got it. And so when you first started exploring Bitcoin, did you see the potential right away? Did you start seeing other applications of this technology, blockchain, digital assets that could be applied more broadly based on your your studies in, in decentralized ownership? Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of people go through the same journey, which is like the first time you see it, you're like, this is crazy. And that was probably back in like 2012, right? Like I had seen or at least heard about Bitcoin. I think it was like Bitcoin was like the buy-in for this poker tournament, a bunch a bunch of like tech founders in Portland. And so you're like, oh, this is kind of like weird, right? And then and then you like think about it a little bit and like, no, I think there's actually something here. It's interesting. Like people are using it as a buy-in. Like people are trading it for goods and services. And then kind of like you let that marinate a little longer. And then you're like, whoa, this is actually revolutionary. So that was, I mean, that was at least my journey. I, from speaking to others, it sounds like that's a, a similar kind of like thought process that, that a lot of people go through. But I think the thing that really triggered the passion was Ethereum, right? So I found Bitcoin fascinating. I thought it could be a much better version of gold. I thought it was superior as a monetary commodity in a variety of ways. And so, you know, just on that thesis alone, it could be a, 10 or 15 or 20 trillion dollar asset and you know then i started thinking you know then i saw ethereum and it was like whoa this changes everything right because now you have programmable money and that really does that will now touch everything and so i think it was like when i when that clicked for me was when i was like i need to spend the next x number of years like focused on this it's interesting i feel like people like us who got introduced to crypto via Bitcoin, that was like where we learned blockchain. But now over time, people may, Ethereum may be the first asset that they interact with or Solana or whatever it may be. But for me, I always have allegiance to Bitcoin because that's where I learned everything. And it's interesting to see as people get in, they go further down the rabbit hole based on where they first came in. So people who got very deep into Ethereum typically entered the ecosystem as Ethereum was heating up. And then we see people coming in with Solana and then they get very deep in Solana ecosystem, et cetera. Very cool. So then once you saw the the light at the, the Ethereum tunnel, what convinced you that you had to dedicate a portion of your career to pursuing the, not only the, like the personal investing, but 
creating some type of vehicle to support the industry? Yeah. So the path from sort of that light bulb moment was I, so by 20, I don't know, 16, I guess I was like, this is really fascinating. I'm going to try to write papers on this. Right. So, I mean, I was a professor, so that's what professors do is like they get data, they write papers. I was like, there's very few finance professors in the world that are focused on this thing. So like I can kind of carve out, you know, a little space for myself here. So I started asking people for data and not surprisingly, like nobody wanted to give me data. I mean, I talked to Coinbase and Overstock and like a lot of the early players, they didn't want to give me data. There was of course, like publicly available, like you could get data on chain, but it was kind of difficult to get it in a machine readable format. It's funny. I remember like having these conversations with Ryan Selkis, like, and then of course, like Masari was born to sort of like solve some of these data challenges. And so the, the, so initially I was just attacking it as a professor, right? I had no aspiration to like run a fund or be an investor other than just personally. And it was really Chris Berniski. So Chris Berniski was writing crypto assets, which was like a very important book back in that era. And he was, he had been like, we had been introduced by a mutual friend and he had been sending me some of the chapters, like PDFs of the chapters as he was writing. That really is what took me down the rabbit hole. He was still at ARC with Kathy Wood at that time. And then, you know, he spun out and started Placeholder. And then another friend of mine who ran Collaborative Fund called me up and he said, hey, we're also seeing deal flow around crypto. Would you just look at deals with us? And that was the beginning of it, right? So what, like before Collab Currency was born, it was just Collaborative's main seed fund. So Collaborative Fund is an independent entity from us, but that's kind of where we were born, is like looking at deals inside Collaborative Fund, doing a few, we probably did about six deals. We did like, we did the Algorand seed round, we did Tagomi, which was an institutional trading platform acquired by Coinbase, we did Open Zeppelin, we did a bunch of cool stuff out of the Collaborative Fund main fund, and then it was really about 2018 where it was like, all right, we got to lean into this thing. We got to create a separate vehicle. We need a team that's just focused on crypto all the time. That was really the birth of Collab Currency. An amazing story and cool to see some of the early investments that you were spearheading out of Collaborative Fund are some of the biggest names and, and foundational players in the asset class today and playing very critical roles in like the Lego building for things to continue to be built on top of them. So that's amazing. Yeah. So then, was, it, yeah I mean, ahead. just to interject real quickly, like, I think they, you know, there was a bunch of, it's like collaborative has always been known as kind of a peer to peer investor. So it was a very natural extension of their thesis. And I mean, just to be clear, I wasn't really spearheading it. I was really just like an advisor or something at that point, like just trying to, everyone was trying to like figure it out at that moment. Like there wasn't like a very robust ecosystem of funds at that, like back in 2016 and in 2017, it was really just a very small handful of players. But anyway, yeah, it was a lot of fun to to kind of like get my feet wet. And, uh, and around what, was. around what time was this? What year? It was like 2016, 2017. So what did the filtration process look like back in those days? Because I remember 2017, that was the ICO craze. And you saw tons of just Twitter pumping and random projects 
getting insane valuations. How are you able to just some of the names you rattled off have have lasted and have generated tremendous amounts of value while many of the big names of that 2017 vintage have are basically ghost chains, nothing, not worth anything. So what was your eye looking for even back then? Yeah. So, I mean, I think Collaborative was really using their existing network, right, among, you know, early stage venture investors. And I think these, you know, Collaborative really never did a lot around the ICO thing, thankfully. It was really that I'd say the differentiator was these looked more like venture deals, right? Like there was a there was a team, there were founders you could get to know, there was like a thesis. I mean, Algorand was a pure protocol. So that was, you know, closer to like what would look like a token deal. But if you look at like Tagomi, Open Zeppelin, I mean, they had business models, right? So that I think is what maybe differentiated them. Very interesting. So then you you did these deals as an advisor to collaborative fund, then when you got the go to to launch what is now Collab Currency, what walk me through the the formation of that, the development of the investment strategy, how you wanted to build the portfolio, what were you looking for in teams and founders? What were the early days of Collab Currency like? Yeah, so it was basically like we went to LPs of Collaborative and we said, look, we're not going to do any more crypto stuff out of the main fund. You know, crypto was still like, maybe it still is today, but like not every, like some people were really into it. Like if you looked across the LP base, some people were really into it and they were like tilt the whole fund to crypto, right? And then there were other investors, LPs, particularly more traditional like pensions and endowments and stuff were like, whoa, pump the brakes. Like we don't know, we don't understand this crypto thing yet, right? And so there was definitely like, a bit of a dichotomy and sort of like how interested, you know, LPs were in the space. And so we said, look, it's no problem. We'll just not do any more crypto out of the main fund. And then if you want crypto exposure, like you're going to have to make an allocation to this new fund that we're spending up called Collab Currency. And so some did and some didn't. And so we raised some capital from existing LPs. We then went out and raised the rest of the fund externally And we told them from the beginning, like, look, this is a space. We're going to be a dedicated crypto fund. We're not going to really do anything that doesn't have a meaningful crypto component. We're going to do direct token deals. You know, like the structure is going to look kind of weird in some of these things. The space is evolving so quick that like the thesis is probably going to evolve during the investment deployment period. And people really like gave us a lot of latitude to go where we thought the space was going. And it's interesting because like the fund really migrated a lot. Like in the very beginning, it was mostly venture deals because that was kind of like the lineage, right? From collaborative fund was like, we thought we always thought of ourselves as venture investors. We never thought of ourselves as like traders or a hedge fund. It's like, we wanted to do early stage deals, be with the team for long periods of time, kind of run the traditional venture model. And in the beginning, a lot of what we did, they were equity deals, like TaxBit was an equity deal, and Bison Trails was an equity deal, and there were a bunch of others, right? There were basically equity deals. And then we realized pretty quickly, like, oh, no, we really have to be doing more token deals. We have to be taking direct layer one exposure. So we then moved into this period where we were doing more 
token deals and more like open market purchases of things like Ethereum. And then towards the end of the fund is when we kind of discovered NFTs or got very interested in NFTs. And that, and so we migrated towards this consumer idea, which ended up being the thesis that we really became known for in funds two and three. Got it. So when did fund two, so just give me, so can, can deal with timelines. Fund yep. one was, when were you investing out of that? Fund one launched 2018, finished deploying it early 2021. Fund two launched early 2021, finished deploying later in 2022. And then fund three is just basically launching now or has launched over the past few months. Okay. That's a helpful timeline. So quick anecdote on my end. In the fall of 2020, I remember seeing Trevor Jones's NFT of some bull that looked like a Picasso bull. Mm-hmm. That sold for $55,000. And I wrote on my Substack at the time, NFTs are something to pay attention to. And then, then you could still buy a CryptoPunk for a couple hundred bucks. Yep. What were your light bulb moments that A, NFTs were essential, but then B, NFTs represent this next wave of consumer adoption that you guys wanted to be ahead of? Yeah, I mean, I can point to two deals specifically that really were light bulb moments for us. The other thing I would just preface this by saying is, I think Derek and I were sort of preconditioned around this idea of consumer products because both of us have a background around consumer products. So wine, right, is obviously nothing to do with tech, really. It's like agrarian, but it's, you know, wine is basically like, agriculture and manufacturing. So it's like not very technical at all, but from a marketing standpoint, it's brutal. Like think about when you go into any supermarket or liquor store, thousands there's of just bottles. like thousands of bottles of wine, right? And like, how does a consumer choose between one or another? And our winery was kind of an incubator. We had about 30 or 40 brands operating out of our winery. We did kind of like something called custom crush. So I got to meet lots of people running lots of different consumer strategies and just think a lot about how do you market consumer products? What sort of things does like do consumers latch on to? And it's like the weirdest shit sometimes, right? Like I remember this was the era when barefoot got big and like, and it like just had a little cartoon foot on the label. Right. And like the one with the kangaroo that I'm, I'm blanking on the name of, but Anyway, the point is, like, it turned out wine consumers really like cartoons on the label, which, like, nobody really knew until somebody tried it, and then it ended up being this huge phenomenon. So I guess I I had always sort of had this mindset around consumer products, and Derek actually had built and sold a consumer products company around apparel. And so he had this lens around fashion and, like, what sorts of things, you know, caused consumers to pick up on different sorts of trends, So he was really programmed that way. So we did this deal in Rainbow, right? So we were one of the very first investors in Rainbow Wallet. And the thing we liked about it was amazing design. We knew consumers really liked really clean, crisp design. And they had it. And then they also had this focus on NFTs. Really, I would say they were the first team we talked to that was like, NFTs are going to be a huge thing. And this was probably like 2018, 2019. And so they, I remember in their deck, right? Like they had 
screenshots of like super rare images. So then we started paying attention to super rare. Super rare was raising. We're now into 2020. So I would say Rainbow was the one that kind of got us starting to think about NFTs. And obviously like CryptoKitties. I was like minting, breeding CryptoKitties. And like I was using CryptoKitties to like teach my kids about blockchains. And that was obviously 2017. So even a little earlier, like Christmas 2017 was all about CryptoKitties. But from an investment standpoint, it was really that super rare deal. So we're now into 2020. We were diligencing it really hard because there wasn't a lot of NFT deals that had gotten done to that point. Top Shot had really found some traction and Dapper. But we ended up doing the super rare deal. And I would say that was the one where we're like, wow, this looks like the future of consumer products. And it's going to start with things that look like art and collectibles. But eventually, this is just a file format. And it's going to wrap everything. It's going to wrap financial contracts. It's going to wrap other types. It's going to wrap music. It's going to wrap, you know, all sorts of these, like, identity social, I mean, it's going to touch everything. And so it was, I would say, during that super deal. So then we wrote an article called You're Sleeping on Crypto Art. I think that probably came out like late summer 2020. And I remember writing lines like, someday there will be a digital artist that makes a million dollars off their art, right? And then it's crazy because like a year later, it was like every drop on art blocks was creating a millionaire digital artist. And But after we did Super, we're like, wow, let's find some more of that. And so Derek had been very early in the Artblocks Discord, had built a friendship with Eric, and so we ended up leading Artblocks first round. We were both into gaming, so we kind of came across Axie, and then we ended up participating in Axie's round. And I would say after those three deals, sort of like Super Rare, Artblocks, Axie, we just started became we sort of became known as a fund that was like focused on and sort of understood the consumer side of crypto and so we just leaned in incredibly fascinating and i love how your experience in more tangible tactile industries informed your investment thinking in crypto which prior to that myself included i was like crypto is for the very technical and those who are very financially oriented, those who trade very actively, who who like to participate in you know, early DeFi, etc. I think that one thing you guys were also early on was just better UX. How were products and applications going to be built to bring on the average user of the internet as opposed to someone who may have more developer or engineering capabilities. I want to click in on Artblocks in particular, because the fact you guys led that deal is prescient and and very cool because Artblocks is not something that if you were to talk to venture investors probably 10 years ago, that they would look at and be like, oh, this is a venture backable business. But I, I think it'd be helpful for some people in the audience to explain Artblocks at a super high level, but then how the company behind Artblocks is an excellent you know, company and, and a great investment. And then all the derivative projects that have come through Artblocks, such as SquiggleDAO, that I think you could also touch on as well. 
Yeah. So art block, I mean, it's interesting. It was, it didn't look like a traditional venture deal. I mean, I would say most of our, most of our best investments have always been very contrarian, like something weird about them that like a lot of other investors didn't like or passed on. Art blocks certainly fit into that category. We were really impressed with Eric, but like Eric had another job when he started Art Blocks, right? So he, I mean, he had another company that he was running, like a non, like nothing to do. It was not technical at all. And so there was questions around like, well, how much time can you dedicate to Art Blocks? But we just became enamored with Eric and with his vision for this. And we knew that he was going to figure it out, right? And so I think the things that attracted us to it were that... You know, people, I think in crypto, people think of art blocks as synonymous with generative art. But the truth is like generative art is, it's been around for decades, right? The difference is they just haven't had a way to prove provenance of the outputs in a way that would allow them to monetize. And so there was an article that Derek really took the lead on called Punk Squiggles in Generative Media. It's on our Medium page for those that are interested but it kind of goes through some of this history of, you know, generative art. And so we knew that there was already this huge culture of generative art and that really blockchains or crypto was NFTs more precisely was sort of like the unlock that allowed the creator of a digital object to now create provenance and ownership rights around that object. That was the zero to one thing that had never sort of been possible before. And so we just had this thesis that like that was going to change the world of collectibles in a very, very big way. And like, I mean, collecting is just something that's sort of like innate to like human behavior, right? Like all of us, I mean, at some point in our lives, like collected something, right? Even if we don't consider ourselves a, a serious collector, like, I mean, for example, like when I was on vacation as a kid, like I never had any money to buy souvenirs, so I would collect sand, right? And then pretty soon I just started like collecting sand from like every beach I went to. And 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 like lots of people have some weird little story like that where they started just collecting something, maybe not even for like financial gain. And so I think like, I mean, to his credit, like Derek saw this very clearly. And he just said like, look, squiggles are going to be a, a revolutionary kind of collectible. And the ecosystem that gets spawned out, because that's all there was when we made the investment, was like Eric had not, that's not all there was. There was a few projects right at the beginning. Squiggles, of course, was the first and the largest. And I think he just realized like this is something that's really going to resonate with people. And in many ways, it's effectively a store of value. Like there's no dependencies. Like once it's created, it's a thing that exists. Like even if Art Blocks went away tomorrow, Chromie squiggles are not going away. They're still out there. And just as people have stored value in art for millennia, people are going to store value in digital art. It's In some ways, it's actually a similar thesis to Bitcoin, right? It's sort of like a thing that exists that people can't take away from you and is a mechanism by which we can store value over some period of time. So focusing on squiggles, there's 10,000 squiggles. Not all squiggles have been minted. I think there's still like 300 to be minted. But squiggles are a piece of generative art, a squiggly line with, with different variables and attributes attributed to each NFT. What I find interesting is how 
a community has rallied around squiggles as an art form and have formed its own organization, a DAO, that with the pure intention of proliferating squiggles as a cultural icon. So would love to just hear from you how a piece of art and then unification around that art has now become a DAO or an organization that is trying to build immense value around this common artifact. Yeah. I mean, it really just comes down to the concept of community, right? There's a people, there, there's a community of collectors that appreciated this particular object, the Chromie Squiggle. And a few of them got together and said, let's basically build a treasury. Let's build a treasury. We'll ask people to donate squiggles and in return, we'll give them some squig token or some basically like a receipt, some marker of kind of like shared ownership in this DAO. And so a bunch of us donated squiggles into this thing and that was it. And that was the beginning, right? And then over time, they just started like collecting more and more and more. I I can't remember what they're up to now, but they have, I believe, hundreds of squiggles. Over 300. Yeah, over 300 squiggles. So like it's a pretty substantial, in terms of value, treasury at this point. And it's really just like the shared love of this particular art form. So like I'm sure there are, you know like people that are very enthusiastic about Picasso or Monet or like maybe more recent artists, right? Like you could think of like communities that have formed around lots of different artists over time. I think the difference with the DAO is, you know, DAOs, I think there's two main use cases that DAOs have really illustrated they're very good at. One is investment DAOs where a group of people come together with a shared goal of pooling capital and effectively running what looks sort of like a venture fund. And then the other one is sort of like like rallying a community with a shared treasury. And I would put Squiggle Down more in that category of like, these were a group of people, they had a singular thing they wanted to promote, which was Chromie Squiggles. People could contribute into that and then they could have some shared ownership over this group that's sort of dedicated to this one thing. So you could do that with Picassos. You could do that. I mean, you could do that with anything except when it's a purely digital object where the ownership rights are recorded on chain, it lends itself to being a DAO, being sort of like the optimal structure to sort of like coalesce that community around. Yeah. I... I'm calling it here, and I'm sure many other members of the Squiggle community will that the the Squiggle be will be one of the most remembered icons of this era in crypto, and and will hopefully last many decades to come as an example of the early days of this new art form. Mo- moving on, so I, I love what you guys have done historically. We're in some fantastic deals and really carved a brand name for yourself at the intersection of consumer and crypto. I'm curious where things go from here. I think we look at 2022 and there was a lot of fraud. There were a lot of smart contract hacks. People lost a lot of money. There were a lot of charlatans. But I also think it it was good for the industry because we had to figure out why we're all here. What are the real builders building? And what value is crypto unlocking for the world at large? So 
as you guys are looking at your your landscape of the world, what are some future trends that you're that you believe indicate the future and projects that you're exemplifying that thesis via allocating to? Yeah, I mean, one, just to follow on the prior sort of thread, I think, is DAOs. We remain excited about DAOs. I think what we've done a lot of learning around over the past 18 months is like what things are DAOs really good at and what things are more challenging. And we are believers that the investment DAO use case is like really valid. So we're continuing to deploy there. I think So, other- so, so to, to drill in there, is that specific purpose DAOs like Flamingo DAO or Neon or exactly. uh, Red DAO. Yeah. So maybe I'll just take like 60 seconds on the history that just to like inform kind of yeah, like that'd be great. where DAOs are now from an investment DAO standpoint. So, I mean, where we actually originally got interested in DAOs was more like Aragon, right? So Aragon was kind of synonymous with DAOs back in the whatever, 2017, 2018 era. And then we got very interested actually in this like obscure project called Aragon Court. I don't know if you ever followed this project no, at all. I'm excited to hear this. So there was this like branch off of Aragon called Aragon Court. And what they did was on-chain dispute resolution, which so I don't know if you know this, Derek's background is an attorney. So that's where he and I first met, is like he was in he was in the law school and also doing a MBA at the university, and he was in my class. So he has this training as an attorney, and he sort of recognized very early that like smart contracts can intermediate a lot, but they can't intermediate everything. Like there's always going to, when you have humans involved, there's always going to be disputes that arise on chain. And we needed some sort of like native on-chain way to sort of adjudicate these things because they're not going to fall into a jurisdiction, right? Like everything is very global. Like just look at Flamingo or the Lao or any of these things. Like there's members in probably like 20 different countries. So you have to have an on-chain mechanism to adjudicate those types of disputes. So we got interested in Aragon court. It eventually got like folded back into Aragon. But like, that's where I'd say we were first interested in DAOs. And so then when we saw Aaron Wright kind of get the Lao going, which was like a restart of the DAO from way back in the day, but like with a bunch of, like more on the up and up from a regulatory standpoint. We were like, wow, let's join the Lao. We just did it personally. It was not a venture deal, right? Like the initial contribution to the Lao was like, I don't remember what it was, 30,000 bucks or something. Like didn't look anything like a venture deal. And then inside of the Lao, so the Lao is a general purpose investment DAO. The Lao will invest in sort of anything crypto. And there was a group of people inside the Lao, like back in 2020, so before NFTs were really a thing, that were starting to say like, hey, this NFT thing is interesting. Like maybe the Lao should buy some NFTs. And I think the Lao invested in SuperRare, for example. And there was a lot of debate, right? Because some people were like, no, let's, this is like a, this is a decentralized venture fund. Let's focus on venture deals. And other people were like, yeah, but these NFTs are really interesting. And eventually it was decided like, why don't the people who are interested in NFTs just go start another DAO to sort of focus on that? That was Flamingo, right? So Flamingo basically spun out of the Lao and it was the contingent within the Lao that was really interested in NFTs. 
and wanted to dedicate capital just to the accumulation of NFTs and NFT sort of specific deals. So it was like a more focused, uh, like a more focused thesis than the Lao. The Lao was more general. Flamingo was more focused. Then, obviously, NFTs became a thing, as we all know, and verticals within NFTs started forming, right? So there was like fashion NFTs and gaming NFTs and metaverse NFTs. And like, so then like Neon DAO, Red DAO, Ready Player DAO, all these other DAOs that sort of spun out of Flamingo were really the same thing again. It was like Flamingo was NFTs generally. And then people realized like, oh, we can create another investment vehicle that's like laser focused on this one sort of target area. Of, of NFTs in this case. And so then we joined a bunch of those as well. And so one of the things we've learned about with investment DAOs is because you don't have the overhead of a regular fund, right? So like a regular venture fund, it's very difficult to make a regular venture fund work without, I mean, I don't know what the number is, but it's many millions of dollars, right? Because like you've got overhead, you've got compliance, you've got all this stuff you have to do. DAOs, because of their nature, are just much leaner because the people putting the money in are also the people sort of running it. And so you can start a DAO with a million bucks, with 500,000 bucks, with $2 million, like these numbers that really wouldn't make sense for a traditional venture fund. And so because you can raise this small amount of capital, you can now target them very specifically at a niche that you find really interesting. Like Red DAO just does digital fashion. And that's it. And so you get a bunch of people on the call that are all interested in that one specific idea. And so you're, you can kind of like accelerate your learning very quickly. So anyway, I can't remember what the original question was, but no, that, it's, it's, like it's fascinating and, and history. I think it's cool to see how it started off broad with the Lao and then ultimately these subsectors formed and one of my favorite things to say is that crypto is not really its own asset class it is a technology that underpins all these different asset classes and Indeed. so as as more money comes in more sophisticated builders continue to develop companies and protocols and projects we'll continue to see blockchain and, and digital assets be integrated into all these different sectors fashion being one that most people wouldn't even think of, but and I don't know if this kind of segues itself now to G Money's project, and maybe you could explain who G Money is, but also the launch of Nine DCC and some of the other projects and Absolutely. companies supporting that launch. So I remember the question now is kind of like, where are we going as an industry? And I think, I mean, clearly the, the industry now has like lots of different verticals. We think consumer is going to be an important one, if not the most important one in time. And so I think one kind of like case study you can point to, just building on this idea of Red Dow, digital fashion, like what's happening over there, is this project called 9DCC. So it was started by a guy named G Money. He's been a longtime NFT collector and has worked with like, Lots of major brands. He's worked with Adidas. He's worked with Prada, sort of advising them on how to approach NFTs. He has like an ape CryptoPunk that's sort of like his his icon. I guess the that's the his personal brand. So that's the way a lot of people know him. 
but he's just been, he's always been one step ahead, right? He's like always just sees around corners on a lot of this stuff. And he got very interested in this idea of, you know, digital slash physical fashion. And like, what can you do with a physical item that also has some sort of like NFT component? And so he started this company, 9DCC, to kind of like explore this idea. And the reason we've been fascinated by this project is partly because I think we have at least six different portfolio companies in our portfolio that are all working on this one project in different facets. And it's like, this is like what we, this was like the dream, right? was like, we can network the companies in our portfolio together. And it's almost like collab currency as a portfolio almost becomes its own network where you're getting like network effects inside the portfolio. And this is the first project where it really felt like that was happening, right? Like there was so many different portfolio companies that were involved. I'll just point to a couple of them. So 90CC is sort of, you could think of that as like the brand, right? Like they're the ones selling the items, marketing the items, putting the overall vision together. They then teamed up with a project called IYK, which does the networked object piece. So basically like the chips that are inside of of the apparel. So each one of these t-shirts has a chip inside of it that can be scanned. And I'll get into a minute why that's important. But IYK, which is another portfolio company of ours, produces basically like the platform around the chips, right? And sort of like organizes the chips going into the apparel. And then when these things are sold, they're not sold directly. They're basically the way you buy one of these t-shirts is you buy an NFT. And then you can mint the NFT into the physical item or, or redeem it maybe is the better term, depending on the project. That was handled by a company called 4K. So we invested in 4K, I don't know, a couple years ago because we realized the future of commerce was probably going to have an NFT component where the NFT is the first thing that's sold and then there's a redemption period, sort of like following the receipt of the NFT. And in the meantime, the NFT can trade independent from the item. So the item sits in secure storage and the NFT, which is the ownership claim, the redemption claim on the physical item, is the thing that's actually trading hands. And so you can use this for merch drops. You can use it for high-value items like a Rolex. You can use it for apparel items. You can do provably fair drops, where things that often get botted. You can use the NFTs for Sybil resistance. So it's fascinating. So 4K was also involved, right? So the shirts would be produced. IYK's chip would go in it. They would be sent over to 4K, 90CC would do the drop in terms of the sale of the NFT, then people could redeem from 4K and and put it back in storage in 4K if they wanted the NFT again to sell to somebody else. So anyway, it was a fat, it's very early, right? They've just done two t-shirts at this point, but it does feel like you're getting a glimpse of like the future of commerce and the future of networked items. And the idea that like now everyone who owns this shirt is in a sense a part of a network. And once you get the chips in the shirt, you can do all kinds of interesting things in like IRL, right? So like at, at Art Basel, which is where he dropped the second shirt, everyone was wearing these things. And if you scanned the shirt, it was like you would get a POAP, right? From that specific person's shirt. And so it's almost like collecting 
autographs, right? Or something of that nature. And so everyone was like running around, like scanning each other's shirts. You can do all sorts of cool stuff with promotion and drops to the same wallet that has a certain type of apparel. So I think like we've barely scratched the surface on where this is going, but that is like an example of something that gets us super excited. Uh, Unbelievably interesting. And I think with experiments like this from G-Money and 9DCC and 4K and IYK, they are just experiments, right? Maybe this won't be exactly what the end result is, but you guys and your port codes are clearly at the bleeding edge of where this technology is moving. And there's massive TAM that this tech and companies going in at the intersection of this tech and fashion and NFTs are disrupting and look no further than StockX or or other similar apparel companies like that. There's immense amount of value. And I think it all kind of ties back to earlier in our conversation with provenance being the key unlock that NFTs actually allow. And I think once that light bulb turns on for people and they get it, then they see the potential of NFTs and what they represent going forward with just experiments like this, but then the massive unlock five, 10 years down the road. And Collab has, has clearly marked themselves as, as leaders of thought and a network of those similar leaders all tinkering on the edges. We were about at time here, but I have a couple questions that I think are fun that, that I'd like to wrap up the episode with. So the first, the first is, what is your spiciest, hottest, contrarian take that you have inside the crypto world? Oh, man. So many spicy takes. I'll give you a couple. And so, like, I think the degree to which they're spicy or contrarian is kind of depends on what circle you run in. I mean, the first one, I mean, which we articulate a lot, is like our belief is NFTs will constitute 99% of all crypto assets within a decade. That's spicy. It's pretty spicy right now. Like, if you ask anyone in our circles, they're like, of course, like, that's obvious. Like, there's far, far more non-fungible items in the world than fungible items. Like, virtually everything is non-fungible. Even a share of stock, which we think of as fungible, is really just a shard of a non-fungible thing, which is the company, right? So it's almost like you can trace everything back to something that's non-fungible. It seems like almost like automatic that non this file format that captures non-fungible items will be by far the largest in the long run. So that's one. I would say another one I often articulate, which has not come to fruition yet, but like I think payroll is one of the biggest things to solve in crypto. We always think about commerce. We think about remittances. We think about these value flows, right, where crypto is interesting, And it's like, look at the largest retailers in the world. So like Amazon and Walmart, like each of them did about 500 million in total revenue last year. ADP, one payroll processor, did 2.7 trillion in payments. Like it's not even close. It's literally more than 5x the total revenue of the largest retailers in the world. And so, like, I think as an industry, we should be more focused on how do we get people paid in crypto and get a wallet in their hands and get them starting to interact with this ecosystem natively. And if we can get 
their paycheck or a portion of their paycheck coming in the form of crypto, even if it's stable coins, that's a massive, massive win. So I, I don't know. Those are maybe two of my spices. Those, those are great. I want to mint an NFT to demonstrate the provenance of this prediction. So that, uh, in that, fairness, <laughs> I made the payroll prediction in 2018 and it's still, so I've been waiting five it. years for this thing. And I think I'm still got a little while longer to wait, but it is the value flows in payroll are astounding. Yeah. Well, I, I look forward to seeing some companies pop up solving that problem. Last question here. So, so those are very spicy takes within crypto outside of crypto. What's your spiciest take? Ooh, spiciest take, nothing to do with crypto. I'll just do a fun one on the topic of spice. There's a hot sauce called Marie Sharps. It is the okay. best hot sauce in the world. I won't believe anyone who says otherwise. So you need to find it and buy it and consume it. Marie Sharps. A, a truly spicy, spicy take. I love it. <laughs> well, Steve, I, I am... So excited to publish this episode because I think you're a wealth of knowledge and and demonstrate where this industry is going better than 99.99% of people I've, I've met. So thank you for taking the time. Where can people find you and Collab Currency? On the- you're, you're very kind. Thanks for all those compliments. I mean, to find us really just Twitter. So underscore, sorry, at Collab underscore Currency. My personal one is at SB McKeon. And then on the web, you know, collabcurrency.com. And you'll find we've got our portfolio up there. We've got links to our blog where we do all our writing. So have a look. Perfect. Well, thank you, Steve, for joining. This was fantastic, fantastic episode. And to everyone else, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Senior Studio. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Senior Studio. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Senius Capital content, check us out at seniuscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.